Red button. Cool. Welcome to Talking Talk, the podcast for the media by us.com. Um, second podcast of the week. We're going to do Talk of Fame. I'm TJ. I'm here with Brent. That's me. And Chris. Yes. And we started unsure if Brent was here or not. I think he's here. I think that's Brent. He's staring right at me. Just forgot my, my, my buddy's name there for a second. Um, yeah, so uh, we got a Talk of Fame nomination submitted by Brent mm-hmm. today. Uh, we all watched the movie Seven. So Seven then. Do what? So Seven in. So Seven in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> David Fincher's that. second film, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and uh, Brent's gonna gonna run us through the gauntlet for Talk of Fame, and then we'll have a vote. We do have a satellite vote with a few comments from David. Mm-hmm. So. We're going to we'll, save those, we'll pull those out at the very end. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, so. Yeah, we may not do Australian Valve this time. We'll figure it out kind of as we go. Yeah, we're changing things up a little bit, maybe. Yeah. So, what you got? Uh, okay, well, let's, first off, if anybody doesn't know what Seven is, it's a 1995 movie, I think it's 95, about a serial killer who uh, is chooses his victims based on the seven deadly sins and uh it's about two police detectives one played by morgan freeman who is in the last week of his job that old trope and then uh the other is a more hot-headed younger cop played by uh brad pitt who was uh that was very much at the point when brad pitt was emerging as a major star in in hollywood um it's got Gwyneth Paltrow. It's got a surprise performance from Kevin Spacey. Yep. It's a, I don't think he was marketed. and he's, nope. he's not in the opening credits at all. He's not in the opening credits. He wasn't in any of the promotional materials. It was truly a secret that he was in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a decent little cast of character actors, too, that they're in this. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a movie that wasn't really critically acclaimed when it came out, but it has definitely taken on a legacy um, where it's a very popular film still to this day. So uh, we're going to decide if it's talk of fame worthy. You know, I will correct you there a little bit. It was it was well received upon release. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it, it was... I was just going off its Metacritic score, which was... Yeah, I mean, it's an 80 or some of Rotten Tomatoes, which Metacritic score is what's in the 60s. Yeah, in the '60s. Yeah, it's just I think the '60s would surprise people on the, and I think people would assume it's higher. They might assume it's like a. It's um, they might assume it's like in the '90s or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it's uh, it's definitely. Although I think even if it was, maybe we're splitting hairs on how well it was received at the time, but it's definitely I think it has a stronger legacy now than it did. When it came out, yes. um, I know another uh, a top movie podcast that a lot of people listen to is Film Spotting. They they're doing this year's uh, March Madness thing they did was uh, movies of the '90s, and seven. It's just like votes, fan votes that not that like basically vote for your favorite movie in each matchup. And seven made it much further into the bracket than I expected it to, and mm-hmm. so that was a little bit on my mind when I picked this movie because it was I definitely didn't know that it still had. Fans to that extent, where people it knocked out Reservoir Dogs, which stunned, <laughs> stunned me in, in that that group. But um, anyway, so uh, the first question of the gauntlet was it entertaining? 
And that goes into, like, just not just was it entertaining, but did you enjoy watching it? Did, what, what kind of emotional response? And uh, and also, for we had all seen it before. Yeah. Sometimes, we'll yeah. talk about how if there was anything different this time. It's hard to call a movie like this entertaining. In the way that I don't have fun watching it. If that makes sense. It's, it definitely makes you feel uncomfortable. I think there is entertainment in that. I wouldn't want to dwell on that on an everyday basis. Yeah, right. You don't feel great after watching this movie for an hour. Right. You need to like follow it up with uh, some happy YouTube videos, yeah. or something, which is what we did. But uh, definitely emotional, emotional. I mean, response. It's, it's that's there. Yeah. The movie does what it is. I think trying to do. Um, it's kind of entertainment is definitely there. Right. Yeah. Um. Actually, I did enjoy watching it, but I think that's only because I hadn't seen it in like 15 years. I enjoyed watching it from a critical standpoint this time. Yeah, I <clears throat> I also enjoyed watching it. The last time I watched it was probably that like, <clears throat> after re-watching it in college because my first watch was like edgy teen in high school, and I wanted to disabuse myself of that bias. Right. I knew going into it. You know, obviously, again, that it's David Fincher, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman. Like, that seems like a hard formula to fuck up. But it is, like, you know, all around good. And, you know, the, the icky feelings are are distanced enough from, not reality, because it's obviously hyper-realistic, but, but from a place that it, it feels, like, semi-fantastical. So I, I find it entertaining despite it, it being, like... I find it entertaining as, like, a good, gritty cop story. It's, it's in, It sounds incredibly morbid, and I've got some incredibly morbid questions that I want to ask y'all throughout this podcast. But uh, it's kind of, like, entertaining the way, like, a crazy car crash is when you're driving down the road. Like, so the last time I watched it was 18 months ago or so, and uh, Cassandra had never seen it. And uh, this is, like, right up her alley for a movie she might love. And I was like, oh, you need to see it. And I was doing laundry and dishes and cooking dinner. And there were times where I'd walk through the living room and just, like, find myself staring at the TV during sloth or whatever. And just being like, like, I want to see this scene, but I don't. I just want to distance myself from the word enjoy on this question. That's all. <laughs> it is <laughs> no- nothing where I'm like, oh, this part's so good. And it is so good, but you don't you feel gross saying that when you're watching it. Yeah. I, that. I feel like it's not only unsettling in the way that John Doe, like, creatively kills these the people. entire movie. But it's also unsettling with the way that you are just fascinated by, like, like I feel like the first time you watch it, you are just like, what's the next creative way he's going to kill somebody? It and makes it, you look for that, and you feel And you bad. feel, un, right, yeah. you feel bad for that. Espe- yeah. Especially with, with the turn where he has to start being hasty because he's being pursued. And so it's like, you know, we, <clears throat> we see Sloth, and Sloth, he takes a year to kind of set up this motif for uh, Mills and Somerset. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, lust is a rush job. Pride mm-hmm. is a rush job. The concepts are there, but the execution is like, you know, it's it's kind of neat to see the evolution of this meticulous planner kind of, like, now he has to... It starts with sloth, not to dive too much into the plot, although the plot doesn't really come up anywhere on this gauntlet thing. But, uh... It's interesting you get this 
the first time you see Kevin Spacey, you don't know it's John Doe, and you really might not know after watching the movie the whole time, because he's a photographer when they're leaving Sloth. Right. And uh, they assume he's a press photographer. And if Somerset, after that, says, this is something I picked up on the first time, uh, when they're in the police station, the Somerset's saying, like, he's not lucky. We were there one year to the day that he started this. But I always thought that Kevin Spacey was just coming there to take a picture of the guy again and check up on stuff. I don't know if they were meant to find him a year to the day. Because he's got a camera and he, just, and he just like took the thing. So I, I, I don't know. I feel like there was a interesting balance between the detectives of this guy's a fucking nut job. Let's go fucking cowboy on him and end it. And Somerset being like, this guy's a genius. We gotta be careful. It's probably somewhere in the middle is kind of what I thought. But I always thought that because of of that, and I, it was you know reconfirmed this time when I realized like, oh, he might he might have didn't know he was gonna bump into them there at the scene of sloth. Right. And it's more or less confirmed when they are driving to like through the desert where you've got Brad Pitt, not even like good cop, bad cop, but kind of smart cop, dumb cop. It reminded me of True Detective this time. It's the first time I've seen it since then. That that dynamic between the two of them of like, you know, Matthew McConaughey kind of being Somerset and Woody Harrelson kind of being mm-hmm. Brad Pitt where it's just like, let's fucking go do it. Let's fucking end this thing. Right. And like the other guy kind of being like a, a Buddhist almost. Yeah. This is very unmethodical ways. Yeah. While we were talking about Sloth, I just kept thinking like that, that's one of the images from the movie. Like when, when they was walking among all the air fresheners, Yep, it's hanging from the ceiling. You're like, what is this? And it is just then it slowly it dawns on you later when all the air fresheners are. Man, yeah. I was telling Brent last night, Chris, that scene, I knew it was coming, and it's like, all right, he's gonna it's a jump scare coming, and he yeah. gets you every time. Don't let it get you. <laughs> it's right when uh, John C. McGinley like leans down. John C. McGinley. John Mc, yeah, John McGinley. Yeah, yeah. Right when he bends down, he's gonna say, "You deserve this," and uh, he's gonna pop up. And I was like, ready for it? And then I was like, oh my god, what the fuck? <laughs> Did it again. Because there's like a moment of hesitation after he said that. After he leans in, there's like just enough of a pause to make you think, oh, there's no jump scare here. <laughs> god. And then it happens. Um, okay, uh, what do we think about the, um, the the script, the story, the plot? Um, the, the storytelling choices. And this is what I want to get into. So I have a question that I have not been able to quite get over for 20 years. And I feel like this is the place to bring it out, the storytelling. We might get into a little bit of three billboards, what the theme is a little bit here. But what's your question? Okay. Um, My question is, first off, I think it does a good job of, or I think it establishes that John Doe has some sort of code, like what he considers to be some sort of, I don't know if it's a moral code, but it's a code by which he, he... he does things. And Let's talk about that real quick. Okay. So I don't have to rehash this. If you go through them, we don't know anything about the history of gluttony, right? That's just a... He's just a fat guy. Just a fat guy. Mm-hmm. Um, next is... Lawyer. It's greed. Lawyer is greed. Next is... And by the way, you see... Uh, you do see a, uh, a clipping. I forget exactly where. I want to say it's in... It's in his like trophy case. It's in John Doe's trophy case. You see a little clipping, and it's a it's a newspaper headline that says "Lawyer frees uh, pedophile." Yes. So he specifically chose that lawyer because that lawyer is is 
He's not so shady. He's in his mind doing bad. All the characters talk shit about that lawyer. Right. I mean, it's you know, even the cops who would cops generally hate defense attorneys. Right. And also, we should point out also that there's a big cross in John Doe's apartment. So he is a he's you know clearly a believer in the seven deadly sins. Yes. Being, but so you have that event which represents greed. Next one you find is sloth. Yep. Um. The next is lust. Lust, which is a married um, man who was trying to sleep with a prostitute, and the prostitute dies uh-huh. at the hands of the man. Uh-huh. Right. And then you have fifth pride. Pride. Yeah. Another one you don't see, right? You don't see lust or pride. They just talk about. You it. see pride because you you see her hands. And her face, because it's bad. Oh, it's right. It's, 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 you don't see the act, just like you don't see the act. On the yeah. The only act you see is wrath and envy. And then you get wrath and envy at the end. So, my question would be to code it, and, and, and because I know where you're going with this, I wonder if it matches up with lust. Because I always thought lust was, if it's a, for a person, the person who manifests lust was the John. I shouldn't say that because the John Doe character was the the trick, the John. Right. Guy. Well, yeah, I, and he I doesn't die. I could see that, but also John Doe mentions that the target was the hooker. Yeah, and he's in the car. He says he says spreading he's disease around. This filthy woman who spread yeah. disease around. Yeah. Everyone. I don't know. I always took it more as an event. This event is the representation of lust or gluttony or pride. Well, we can't think of it as as. And not like the death in his mind. That's the way I always watched it. Well, I don't think you can think of it as the death because the, there is no death in right. sloth. Well, it's 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 the victim of the behavior, and that can be both the trick and the that's, prostitute. That's fair, and also pride. He gives pride a chance to live. Right, pride. Right, can, and sloth. So it's not sloth does live unless unless we believe, and I don't think you're wrong. But unless we believe your narrative that John Doe was showing up again and ran into the detectives for Sloth, but Sloth was meant to be an exhibition that he let him live for X number of days, and then Sloth finally died. Sloth is also the hardest seven deadly sin to define. Right. It's very vague. At the very least, he makes victims out of people that are partaking in this in these sins. Right. In his mind. Yes. In some way. Okay, so saying that, I don't want to derail you too much, but okay. continue with your... So the issue I've had with this movie for a long time is that it seems disjointed and out of his character to make Tracy a victim yes. in this movie. I understand that he is committing the sin of envy, and he, and he tells David that at the end. Um... And I understand that he makes David a victim of wrath, even though he is a quote-unquote a victim of the violence as a result of wrath, but David is his target for wrath. But the death of Tracy, always, or the victimizing Tracy, always seemed strange to me because she does. she's the only victim in the entire movie that doesn't embody this, a sin yeah. connected to it. And I've always had trouble re- uh, reconciling that plot point. I, I I felt the same thing after finishing it. I, 
watched it after we got back from the movie last night. So I finished this movie at 2 o'clock in the morning, perfect headspace, yeah. to watch 7. That's a, a dark room at 2 a.m. in the morning is exactly where this movie Where Fincher wants you to be. That's where yeah. David Fincher wants you to be. Yeah, that's a good point. But I was watching it, and so the my favorite scene in this movie, I'm just going to come out and say it. I know we'll, we'll probably talk about our favorite scenes, but my favorite scene is the car ride out to the desert. That's not just because of how important it is for exposition and motive and all the, the typical cop story stuff, but just because it is, it is to me, the, the, the rawest exhibition of acting talent and of just, like, just the emotive ability of... It's a lot of talent in that car. Of, yeah, yeah <laughs> of, of, the, of the written characters and the screenwriting. Um, but uh, Mills asks him, David Mills asks, you know, like, but, but why, why kill innocents? He's kind of talking through the contradiction that Morgan Freeman points out. Um, about him finding pleasure in it, and Mills asks in the middle, like, why kill these innocent people? And Kevin Spacey's defense is he doesn't kill innocent people. Right. They're all guilty of their sins. Um, you know, and then he goes in his tirade about, like, a fat man who you wouldn't want to see eating his food and make you lose your lunch, and blah, 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 blah. But then we find out, you know, what's in the box, and uh, <clears throat> he's killed an innocent person. Like, mm-hmm. and that was against his credo, which never sat right with me either. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's just, I mean, so if he's talking shit about these people because they are, they've given in to sin, and it's about the sin and not the sinner, why is he any different? Because he has committed sin himself. Right. Because cause the, the, like, lust was a target because she spread this virtue this like this this not virtue this vice, and it's like irrespective of like other people who she harms by it. It personally harms him because other people like it's it's it has to be from his lens because other people notice these things because that's his 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 monologue is about how like people don't do anything about this. People are going to talk about me. This is going to change the world. But in his I guess exhibition of envy. He's the one who takes somebody's life, mm-hmm. who isn't a victim of any of these things, but everyone else like may have affected other people, but it's about the the performance of the seven deadly sins is for people to look back and reflect on it. Right. And I don't think that Tracy dying is an accurate reflection of envy. Oh, uh, I, I do. I do think it is. I mean, in the same way that, like, I feel like you would have to make the same argument for, like, the kids that were raped from the pedophile. Right. Like, Stacy... Sloth. Yeah. Tracy, I'm sorry, is the, the same as those kids. She's just a character in this thing. This... this It's a... It's about the sin and not the death as much. She's a byproduct of the sin, right. not of his grand plan. Right. Well, I think it's both. But, I mean, he knows he's a sinner. But she is not a... She, he doesn't... Okay. I, and I can and, and neither are the kids, and you either have to say neither is the trick, or he was also a sinner for lust. And I really think it was both. And that was the event, was this is this represents lust. But yeah, I just think it's... Uh, <clears throat> it's not like each death represents a sin. It's these events that are created by sin. And... She is a byproduct of envy, and while the prostitute was a victim of lust, so was the murderer. Right. 
I can see it in that. It's just it's it is. I think it is the the biggest stretch because you know the lawyer profits, well, quote unquote profits. He's he's a shady defense attorney, so he makes more money than he should. Right. But like the lawyer profits for getting pedophiles and murderers free. The uh, you know the prideful woman would rather take her own life than save herself disfigured. Mm-hmm. Um, but. He was never, like, there, there's never, like, a, an either-or choice for him. He was always going to kill a woman who, as a result of his envy, and she was never going to be like, involved. Like, I don't know. Like, it's, Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying they were victims the whole way. I yeah. feel like that weren't involved. And, like, that's the other thing is, like, why not kill the prostitute himself? Why make the other guy do it if she's lust? Why trap a Bowie knife for this dude's dick? Because he makes everyone kill themselves. He makes everyone make the choice. But, but, if, but if she's lust, she's not deciding anything. She was tied to a bed, and then he made somebody fuck her. But, if she's but he's lust, never the one doing the killing. Then. Right. Right, but so, like, why this guy of lust? Like, what is he? You know what I mean? Like, he's not involved either. Or he is, and it's not a death. Right. It's one or the other. Yeah, it's, I don't know. And I, I don't think, actually, I don't think he went, I don't think he intended, I don't think he always planned to kill someone due to his envy. He mentions that he tried to play husband. Yes. With Tracy. So I think he went there hoping to, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know, that's just, that's the, the counter to your argument. Of that. Right, always right. felt weird. It's like, I feel like that was just a result of the sin. And he wanted people to look back on that and say, like, you know, to look at the sin and say, like, why are we living this way? This is what sin can do. I guess, I guess one, one last point on it, or, like, one last argument, not last in the, I need the last word, but, like, so we can continue the dialogue. Uh, but he's already the grand planner. So he can put himself in any of these roles and pick and choose the sin with that he exhibits. Obviously, envy and wrath make a nice little package, not to make a pun. But, so then for him, he's putting himself in this situation where, and maybe it's true, maybe he's always looked at, at the family man and been envious of that because mm-hmm. he could never have it. But it's so targeted at Mills and Tracy that it feels like he made this choice. He could have, you know, chosen to be the person with the strap on but includes the John. He could have, you know, he slots himself in at envy when he could have done it with every other sin. And I don't, I don't understand that part of it. It's a little convenient too. Like, I mean, it's it's also like one of those things that's like, uh, who would he have been envious? Of? I'm curious who he would have been envious of if Mills never uh, got assigned to this case. <laughs> like, it, especially considering he had all this planning. And if Somerset was if Somerset was right, we don't we don't know if he was right in that he wanted them to find Sloth one day or one year after he began. Like. It's really, it really worked out nicely then that they put a detective on the case who he could be envious of and, and use his wrath. Right. Because if they had just left Somerset to do this whole case on his own, that's not going to work out for John Doe in the end. How, I wonder what his ultimate plan was. So in that sense, I think it's all a little, a little convenient, but I don't hate it. I no. don't, I don't mind it all that much. It's just, it's something that just struck me as a little, I don't know, like, it kind of struck me as like this. We just need to wrap this story up in some interesting, clever way. See, and, and and I don't I don't I don't think that that is necessarily it because I really do think that 
when they go to his apartment and he's coming back with groceries before the chase scene through the rain, then he has to accelerate his plans. So it becomes a little improvisational after, uh, for the next four Deadly Sins. I can see that. And so part of that is like, you know, this is someone who's meticulous. You know, he's got 30, 250-page composition books filled with notes on, you know, how disgusted he is with human beings. And But, like, now, oop, the, the, the jig is up. Like, this needs to be completed. And That's so <clears throat> I think that, that Envy is sloppy because it's it's it has to be, because it's improvised. And less that he planned it for Mills. I, 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 I would think that he had a story, a motif that didn't involve him and that didn't involve the detective's, co- the detective's wife. Because you can do Envy and Wrath with, you know, you don't have to do them like all at once. It's just, it makes for a good story, but I think it is, it's forcing David Gale's John Doe's hand. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can see it. It's, uh, I don't know, it's just nothing I ever thought about. Did you find the characters interesting? Um, I thought John Doe was certainly interesting. And uh, that may have been it. I liked Tracy, the character of Tracy. But, uh, I mean, Somerset is just that that old, like, it's, as soon as the movie starts, he's just like, it's my, it's my last last day on the job, my last week on the job. Yeah. And that old trope. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I can just say no to that, honestly. And yeah. that's really with all the characters, including John Doe. No, it was, like, I think the story's interesting, but I don't think the characters are necessarily great. What's the, so what's, I know Chris already said his most memorable scene. What's your most memorable scene? I mean, most memorable is the last scene. The desert? There's, if that's not the most memorable scene, you're wrong. I think it's the, it's my favorite scene, and it's the, well, yeah, it's definitely the most memorable. And it's, uh... I think it is a, despite my, like, spending a lot of that time thinking about the, the Tracy issue, despite that, I think that is a masterful scene. Just from the from the moment they get in the car yeah. until basically the truck, until until he cuts open the box. Yeah. And the, uh, the shots back and forth of, uh, you see just the horizon behind... Uh, Mills behind John Doe behind uh, Somerset, all of it. It's all cinematography in that scene. It's fantastic. Really good. Seen it from the helicopters angles at times, and that long, that long road where that truck comes driving down. You're like, what the hell is this? Yeah. The, the suspense that builds in that scene is amazing. Yeah, it's really good. Um, <laughs> that's you, you not s- your most memorable. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Uh, what's your? Uh, that to be your favorite. But. You, you said you said you might we might talk about themes here. Yeah, that's going back to what I was saying. I mean, I think I kind of hit it. What do you think the theme of the movie is? Because I don't really. For me, one doesn't stand out. For me, it's just a it's just a gritty serial killer movie done well. I don't think the movie itself is has anything thematically interesting to say. <laughs> Did you not watch the last 30 seconds where Morgan Freeman has the inexplicable voiceover of Ernest Hemingway? <laughs> that cuts off real quick. Real quick. Yeah, Hemingway I mean, once said that... I always took it as like an overplay of religion. Like, you know, touching pigskin and everything else with this, you know what I mean? All the bullshit that's in the Old Testament. And if you take that to truth, we're all sinners and it's not close. You know what I mean? And this guy took it verbatim. 
essentially, and you know wanted to deliver the sinners. Did yeah. I mean, I, I definitely took a. I always thought the theme of this movie was how overbearing religion is in the world, and if you take it for what it is, and not what no, nobody, the, and not what it's supposed to teach you. No matter how much you right. preach, no matter how much you go to church, yeah, and the world that we live in now, you know, you're not. You're not living the word. Okay. Let's see that. Uh, number three, to the performances. Uh, do they stand out in any way? I'll <laughs> say, I was... There were moments in the movie where I thought Brad Pitt was great, and there were moments in the movie where I thought Brad Pitt was awful. Same here. Yeah. Except maybe fewer moments where I thought he was great. But I thought there were... I thought there were... I thought he was... He did a bouncing act of awful and... Adequate. The the <laughs> the great stuff was when he wasn't talking. The body acting, like running his hands to his hair, and like when they're in the bar. The original Winston Stewart. And this is the true the true detective moment is when Morgan Freeman's like you know says something introspective, one of the fifty things he said, and Brad Pitt's just like, man, you keep saying all this shit, and I don't know what any of it means. <laughs> it's like it's 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 good. Like when he, they're outside the thing, and he's like, we gotta go in, we gotta get him, and he's like, we don't have a reason to knock on this door. Yeah, like, you need to chill out. And Brad, yeah, that's a good scene. And Brad Pitt's just like manic. Yeah, um, he was good. He is wrath. I mean, that gives yeah. the point, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm with you. The, his delivery of lines in some of the early scenes was bizarre. Yeah, it's like really the timing of his deliveries were really strange. It was like he had to. It was almost as if he were saying the line in his head before he opened his mouth. It, it, it felt like bad ADR, uh, <clears throat> where like you. Like, it, he just had, like, he was over-pronouncing vowels. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he got some bad dialogue to work with sure. at times, too. Right. There was some of that movie. There's, I, I wrote a couple of notes down. One was, when they walk into the first death, he goes, we got ourselves a fucking homicide. I was oh, just no. like. <laughs> oh, I actually like that because I like that, I like that it is. Like, he pretends to be a TV cop? That that's what he thinks. Like, I think that's part of his character. I didn't. I think those are intentionally corny lines because of the way Somerset reacts to them, which is just always just like, would you fucking shut up? Like, you can <laughs> see it in his eyes. But he doesn't in another eye-rolly bit of dialogue when they're in the office of the attorney and they're cutting the thing off the back of the picture. Yeah. And he pulls out a switchblade and opens it, and Brad Pitt just goes, what's that? And he goes, it's a switchblade. It's like, were switchblades invented in the early 90s? Did I miss something? They were, they were I think they were, they were pretty recently made completely illegal. Like a, a cop doesn't know what a switchblade is, though. I, I think it's. I think it's just pointing to like Morgan Freeman is carrying like an illegal switchblade. It's just weird. Because there's like there's no, there's scary. there's like sprinkles and hints that Morgan Freeman is a dirty cop. Yeah, I mean, like more than sprinkled. Right. <laughs> it's there at the end when he goes and sees the the guy Batman drops off the roof. <laughs> what the guy the FBI guy the gets FBI guy. The, That's the guy that yeah Batman picks up oh. and he's dropping off the roof. Okay. <laughs> It's, some viewers or some listeners got real confused. <laughs> I did. I, I was like, wait, Morgan Freeman is Lucius Fox in Batman. Have we started talking about Batman movies? <laughs> like, oh, we're two movies together. I'm Those down. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I do think, talking about acting, uh, I think it's a top five role for Morgan Freeman. I thought he was really good in this movie. He's not bad. I don't, nothing really stood out to me as as great. I, I think this puts Morgan Freeman in a position where he just excels. He is the, you know, he is the philosopher theologian 
and he's the you know hardened cop with and I know Brad Pitt's not like a rookie rookie because he's a detective, but yeah, like, he tells us that a bunch. <laughs> yeah, but he's like he's 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 a young like whippersnapper, and he's not acting to the extent of it being trite. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like well young and like here's how we do it and like here it's it's very practical in all the advice he's giving and the way that he's like examining scenes Mm -hmm. that I think he does a really good job of being understated while being this kind of grand figure sitting atop his like years and years of experience. Because you can overplay that role for Morgan Freeman really easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's something that might be overplayed now rewatching it. Yeah. Because at the time he had done like, uh, what's the one where he plays the pimp that was well received? The Morgan Freeman movie? I don't know. Street Smarts? I don't know. That's sounds And uh, Unforgiven was a few years before where he played the same kind of role. The the partner, the, the one of two people who is calm and collected. Yeah. Um, is, is, was Glory before this or was Glory right after this? Glory That's right. Before this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I did laugh really hard at a scene that I don't remember laughing at before. Because it's not that memorable, but it's Arlie Irving when he answers the phone. He just goes, this isn't even my best. Yeah. <laughs> That's all he says. That's really, really funny. I like that. I think it's, I think it's kind of fun to see a, a really, really sedate Arlie Irving. Yeah, it was great. We just, Kelly and I just recently watched, because it's one of her favorite movies, inexplicably, uh, Saving Silverman. <laughs> Where, like, Arlie Irving is the most over-the-top fucking <laughs> character in that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and you had some other people that were... Yeah, Richard Schiff, who plays Toby in the best TV series of all time. <laughs> yeah, he's got like two minutes of screen time. He's the, kid. the lawyer, I guess, assigned to John Doe. John Doe's lawyer. Yeah. And uh, John C. McGinley, we talked about. Is he the sniper in the helicopter? Yeah. Is, oh, he, is, he, is he that as well? Yeah, he, his name's California. Oh, movie. he is that as well. He's also the head of the SWAT team in the SWAT. Okay. That's, that's when I first noticed him in the helicopter. I didn't know... I was like, Dr. Cox has got a sniper rifle. Weird. And uh, Gwyneth Paltrow perfectly cast and filmed in the beginning as like, oh, she's such a sweet person. Yeah. Yeah. That scene is one of my favorites, too. The dinner scene when everything's happy. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, after dinner, they're going to have a couple of beers. And they're laughing at their situ- their apartment situation. Yeah. 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 It was just a... It makes the ending that much more horrifying. Yeah. And the, and the acting out of Brad Pitt in that is also really good. Everybody, like, all three of them in that scene are great. Like, you know, he has some handy lines, but when he's sitting there, like, talking like, fucking real estate agent, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really good. Yeah. And they're both laughing at him. Yeah. But Morgan Freeman loses it and can't stop giggling. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Um, but Kevin Spacey, I think, does an okay job. I think he does exactly what he needs to. I mean, it's he's great cast for that deadpan, yeah. like, um... Somebody, somebody, I was somebody. gonna say he does a good job, but it's the good job that like is just wheelhouse for Kevin Spacey, where it's just he has to play a monster, and he's really good at that, apparently. Yeah, that's about to say. <laughs> we we later found out why he was able to tap into that. that the, the movie critic from Paste at the time wrote uh, that Spacey's portrayal is a perfect balancing act. I'm just gonna quote this because I thought it was really well said. John Doe is detached from the murders he commits, yet deliberate and meticulous. Um, unemotional yet smug, analytical, violent, patient, impenetrable. Like, but that's a great role for Kevin Spacey to yeah. do all those things. Um, that's what he did well in the '90s. Yeah, and this is also the same year that Usual Suspects came out. Yeah, it was a year year after, I think, where he yeah. plays the same kind of character for most of that movie. Yeah, yeah, and he plays the same kind of character in American Beauty. I mean, those are the ones that you remember Spacey for. Are these just like 
Void of emotion. Yeah. K-Pax. Yeah. K-Pax. Um, the Namas. Voices of the Kid Cat. Um, okay, let's talk uh, technical achievements. Talk Nine Lives. <laughs> yeah, let's talk technical achievements. Um, did anything jump out at you in this movie? I think that I think with Fincher, editing is always interesting because he's always going to be... Got nominated for an Oscar for it. Oh, it did? For editing. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> it's yeah. my, I read something, so the title sequence became infamous. It was a short film director. Uh, it does like quick cuts of uh, John Doe kind of assembling his journals. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Fincher went and got this person who does these as like kind of short films. And uh, people had discussed hiring this, this person like in like, like production studios but didn't like when he did intros because the intros were oftentimes better than the film itself. <laughs> um, but that kind of like quick cut, like really like grimy procedure if you for like the intro credits. If, is, you, if you didn't rewatch Seven but wanted to listen to this, it's if you watch AHS, it's the intro to American Horror Story. Yeah. That like, bzz, bzz, or like, yeah. yeah. Just those like uncomfortable noises and sounds. It's, and, it, it, it's, it's, you know, Dexter makes fun of it with their intro, how yeah. it's all like, you know, upbeat and chipper, and it all shows him, like, looks like he's killing somebody, but he's just, like, getting ready in the morning. Right. Um, but it, it also spawned uh, David Fincher's relationship with Trent Reznor. Uh, I pointed that out actually last night. Yeah. I said I, it's their it's first time, not definitely his last time, using uh, Trent Reznor for the opening credits. Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously not film editing, but I, I thought that was an interesting editing, little toy. touch on the cinematography for the final scene, which is great there, but it's great in the whole film. Yeah. Um, and uh, the ambiguity of the setting. Yeah, that, I wanted to bring that up too. And I, was, I guess set design, so there are a couple things like that. First off, it's this is the first movie that establishes that Fincher 90s look, which yep. is carried through in the game and also in uh, Fight Club, which yeah. is just just dirty, dirty urban areas. Yeah. Interiors. Yeah. And industrial looking. Yeah. And uh, I think Brett's probably going to touch on it here, but it's, uh, it's set in Springfield for... <laughs> You don't know where it is. Yeah. It, it yeah. looks like New York, but you pointed out last night the uh, Brent did that the the subway is risen. Right. So it's a, it's it it looks like an East Coast or an Eastern city, like uh, New York maybe. Uh, but then it has uh, the desert know, an hour away. The desert is just outside it's the city. Raining the entire film. So it's yeah. not L.A. So it's not so, L.A. And I think the whole, I think. The whole point behind this is to make you feel uncomfortable and make you feel like you like disoriented as you're watching yes. the movie, like you don't know where yeah. you are. Yeah, because yeah, it's it like the raining scenes. You're like, oh, it's Seattle, Portland, like like north, northwest with the desert. Yeah, but then desert. Like, there's something that can cross off whatever city you think it is. Yeah, uh-huh. like maybe this is the first in the Sacramento movies that Greta Gerwig wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. That's the closest. Oh, it could be. I don't know what kind of weather Sacktown has near it. But then when they are uh, when they're taking the car ride out to the desert, if uh, I actually had to pause it so I could see the road sign, the the leaving the city limit sign. There's no city named. Yeah, obviously. But the city limit sign says popula- population eight million <laughs> city. So it's just so it's, so it's a massive city. And, right. And the symbols on the interstate sign are not symbols we use in the U.S. <laughs> For like for state road, it's not the shape of a state. It's like this weird geometrical thing. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's cool because it's it, yeah, because it's Springfield. It's it's he wants Fincher is deliberately making you think that this is happening or could happen in every town USA. Right. 
Like, like you're like, there's not one. This isn't a New York problem, an LA problem, a Florida project. This is a, a an everywhere. Yeah, it serves both those purposes. It it makes you feel like this could be happening anywhere, like where you are. But at the same time, it's also just dis, like I said, disorienting, and it's just it makes you feel uncomfortable watching the movie. I think it adds to that level of discomfort. Yeah, which is yeah, which is interesting. It, really impressively done just the constant rain like my wife mentioned halfway through the movie she's like it just keeps raining i'm like yeah that's the it did jump out to me this time it got got a little annoying at times this time yeah i think it i think it's thematic though i mean oh it's definitely definitely yeah just this time particularly i don't know why yeah very loud it seemed to me at times it's it's until john doe steps out of the cab it's raining and then when John Doe steps out of the cabin into the sunshine, that's when it stops raining for the rest of the movie. Right. Um, that's interesting. I, I, did, I did, like, I think that, that David Fincher does dark really well. Um, not just in, like, the, uh, <clears throat> in, like, the script, but, you know, very, very dark, dismal grays, blues, like, browns, like, all that really well. And then when you f- get to one of the scenes... Like in John Doe's apartment, there's the bright, there's a neon red cross. Yeah. Uh, you've you finally got like like music existing in space when they go into the uh, the whorehouse, and there's like the the loud like industrial music and like the the bright lights. It's yeah. like <clears throat> almost almost as if they're like the DP is like, like like trying to guide your eye, saying like these are fucking obvious sins that are being committed around everybody and we're just we're just ignorant or we're giving it a pass. Right. Uh, that was that was neat. Also, like, the cross in John Doe's apartment being over his bed, I don't know if you guys noticed, but his bed has straps on it. Yeah. Which is, like, something you've seen in, like, uh, like asylums as settings or with, uh, like, religious, like, like, specifically, like, Christian religious extremes. Right. Where, like, they'll strap people down so they don't, like, play with themselves or so they don't, like, toss and turn from nightmares or whatever. So they'll just, like, lie and be penitent and just, you know, sleep and then wake up and get unstrapped. You know, whatever. Right. But I thought it was, you know, neat detail sprinkling in from, you know, set design and from uh, production design. Yeah. Of, uh, of the people involved with this movie, would this be anyone's number one achievement? Or at least if they if they have... Such a career that's, you know, got numerous, you know, greatest hits or whatever. Where would this rank highly among them? So start with David Fincher. Is is there a chance? I think this, I think some, Fincher's hard, man. He has so many, like, movies that people consider great that I don't know. I think this could be a lot of people's pick for his best movie. I think Fight Club probably has more votes out there. Here's the Fincher directorial filmography. You got Alien 3, 7, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl. Um, 7 for me, it's it's fringe top 5 out of 10 movies. And he is, he is a, even though he doesn't have a ton of movie credits that, credits i think he is a he is one of the more important directors like he's he's a he's he's revered he's a big name director in that you could slap his name on something and people are more likely people will watch it who would not have otherwise watched it yeah like mindhunter for example you know is a is a show i might not have even been interested in but when i found out david fincher was was producing it yeah 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's behind Fight Club for me. I know I'm higher on that movie than most critics our age. But um, it's below the social network. It's below Gone Girl for me, Seven is. Yeah. Um, um, Zodiac, for sure. You said you think this might be one of Morgan Freeman's best performances? I mean, uh, I think so. It's yeah. up there with Unforgiven. And, uh, I mean, a lot of people are going to point to Million Dollar Baby because he won an Oscar for it, but I think it's better than that. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I agree for both of those. I think it's top five Fincher. Um, and I think it's a, it's with a career as long and as, uh, you know, respected as Morgan Freeman's, I think it's hard to put a, a strict number rank on each performance, Mm -hmm. but there's, there's clearly tiers to roles and performances. And I think it's in the upper echelon of his. Yeah. This, yeah, this movie might not be anybody's number one, but it's, it's near the top of a lot of lists. This is, this is the A minus performance out of everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, um, except for maybe Brad Pitt, who came. I think he became a much better. It's actor not a top later. five Brad Pitt for me, but it's right. I think this is important to Brad Pitt's career. It definitely is. And, and I think I mean, it's like his first. I mean, but he had done Legends of the Fall. I think that was his first big hit movie. Was that his? Well, where he starred. Yeah. Because I mean, Thelma and Louise. Right, but th- that was yeah. the movie that that was the movie that kind Put of first, that, kind first of. launched him as a star, and yeah. Yeah. Because next he does Meet Joe Black. He's got a bit part in 12 Monkeys, either that year or, or just previous. Oh, he's, he's in 12 Monkeys. He's the Oh, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Um, but, like, Interview with the Vampire. He's got some, some good pit. Oh, yeah, that's in before it. that. That's, that's a big pit. That movie was huge. But, like, before that, like, 92, A River Runs Through It. Like, that is a very different Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah, A River Runs Through It was... Yeah, this was the movie that put him on sort of a different... And, and well, it's just his relationship with Fincher. I think. Yeah, it hooked him up with David Fincher. He gave him Fight Club, which is the biggest Brad Pitt movie, I think. And uh, eventually, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button got him a bunch of Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Was the film financially successful? Did it have mass appeal? Um, it was definitely a, a hit. I think it made eighty over eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and. It won its weekend in the box office. I think total it's like 317 million. Three, over 300 worldwide. I think its domestic take was around 100. Right at 100. It was a huge hit overseas, which was interesting. Yeah, 100, 100 in North America, 227 million in the rest of the world. Uh, another funny detail about this movie is it it opened against Showgirls. That's, I read that. So, so like it's probably really high for a rated R movie at the time because it opened against an NC-17 movie, right. which if rated R doesn't do well because of its rating, NC-17 is going to do less good. Yeah, I was reading another that. Showgirl's like, uh, what's his name? The director? He directed Paul, is it Paul Verhoeven? Yes. Yeah. That he wanted the NC-17 rating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Verhoeven's nuts. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, of, what do you think audiences liked about it? Why was this such a big hit? Is it just because it's just a, it is a really, it's a creative serial killer? Talking to a thriller. So last September, so months ago, we were uh, talking to friends of the podcast, Chad and Katie, about the abrupt change in movies from the 80s to 90s and how you started getting movies like Natural Born Killers, which Fincher was also involved in, I think, in some aspect. But yeah, it was the, the first wave of these like crazy fucking crime movies where the good guy doesn't win. Yeah. And I think people... Liked it because it was the first time they'd ever fucking seen it. And a lot of people saw this movie and they were like, never seen a movie like this before. And I don't give as much credit to that as some people do. 
I, I, I hate to, to take the cop out, but I think that also it was largely influenced by really effective marketing. Um, like, here you had, like, a detective story that looked like hard as nails, like, you know, the L.A. Confidential, the uh-huh. Dog Day Afternoon, but, you know, there's no killer and there's no central conflict presented, like, at all. So it's just, you know, it's it's two actors. You know, Brad Pitt was one of the most bankable stars at the time. And, there, yeah. and Morgan Freeman. Coming off of two Oscar nominations. Coming off two Oscar nominations. Yeah. And then deliberately hiding who the antagonist is. Yeah. Um, I, I think that probably had a lot to do with it. Um, also, it's like, this is... This is the angst of grunge in movie form. Yeah. Like David David Fincher it, it personifies that from from this to like through Fight Club in the late nineties. I also think that like the the nature of the killings, the grisliness of it, like the it, it definitely lends itself to that like um uh, water cooler talk. Like it's a word of mouth movie too that I think yeah. a lot of that probably lended itself to. I'm just glad we didn't get a lust scene. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, those it was hard enough. Those hearing them talk about it. Those mechanics placed in your head when you see the device. It's this bladed dildo. And that guy being a really good performance. Yeah. Whoever that dude well, is. We actually didn't get any of the scenes except for except for the death of John Doe. Well, we, yeah, but you you get the oh like an, like a an after a body. Yeah. 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 I didn't yeah. want to see her body. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but I also think, and I think TJ hit on it early in our conversation, that this is Schadenfreude. This is this is watching a, a train wreck. This is, yeah. you know, not not that people. I think everybody who saw this had trouble puzzling over whether it was an enjoyable movie. But there is that emotional hit from like watching this uh-huh. um, that isn't purely just like because if you know. If you watch Faces of Death, you know, like, yeah, it's disgusting, it's not enjoyable, it's people dying, but this is kind of similar. It's people dying grisly ways, but it's it's presenting it in a mechanical kind of, like, maybe there's some comeuppance in the end and some audience satisfaction, but I don't think you do, because Morgan Freeman says, if you kill him, he wins. And then that's exactly what happens. You've had these little spots in movies throughout history, too. Uh, you called it hyper-realistic earlier, which is interesting to me, because I feel like it almost is the opposite of that at times where it's like you get these little pockets of not pockets, but like metropolis, Brazil, these movies that came out throughout history where they were just like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? None of this makes sense. It's just a really weird story. And that's kind of how this came across to me at times was, you know, Fincher saying like, we don't need to put a bow on everything. Just make this crazy story. I want this to be almost like art, which sounds super cheesy, but you know, like, you wanted to invoke that uneasiness in people. Right. And just constantly, like, I mean, he even said, like, he he told the cinematographer, like, one direction at the beginning of the film, which is, like, you wanted to look like an episode of Cops. Just, like, not shaky, but, like, dirty. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And just, like, the whole point of the movie is just to invoke this, just, like, ugh, feeling the entire time. Yeah, maybe that's totally... I mean, you get gluttony before the credits, right? Yeah. So, like, from the get-go... You're just meant to feel gross. And yeah. Gluttony might be the grossest one. And you have to sit there and look at this dude. Yeah. Brad Pitt fell in the bucket of vomit. Like before the credits roll, you're queasy. And I just don't think people have felt that way. I mean, you don't, you don't, 
there aren't pockets of movie history where that is rampant. You know what I mean? Where you get a lot of movies like that. So people went and saw this and it was something new and it was done really well. Uh, do you think Seven influenced cinema after it? I know you always have copycat movies that come out. I feel like there were a lot of movies, like the movie Copycat, for example. That just there, the I feel like this reinvigorated sort of the serial killer genre because I feel like the late '90s and early 2000s were a. It's not like you don't get as many of those movies anymore, and you I don't can't name as many from like the '80s and early '90s. Right. But I feel like from 1995 to like 2005, it's Seven and. Natural Born Killers. I think you get those paired together, kind of start a. They launch. They help launch Tarantino a little bit with Pulp Fiction too. Mm-hmm. Was similar, just in a crazy fucking movie where death is accepted. Yeah, I'm thinking more of like the actual, just like like movies like The Bone Collector, like movies where it's just like some there's some crazy killer out there, and we've got to, each movie is about trying to catch that crazy killer. Copycat. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't I don't think that Eli Roth has a career without this movie. There's some movie where there's a somebody shut in. There's a shut in that's being terrorized or something that reminds it's in that same genre. Um, huh. I definitely pair this with more like eclectic filmmakers than with that genre in my head. That's interesting. Hmm. Well, I, I think, think it was both. part of that. Yeah, sure. Like, so you're more Brent. You're more on the like gritty kind of spectacle killing. Spect. I think it. Yeah, and I think that other movies didn't handle it quite as well as this. Uh, like, I think. I think this one, it makes you feel uncomfortable because I think Fincher is maybe punishing viewers for showing up thinking, like, if if there were any viewers that were showing up for the spectacle of the killings, he wants to make them uncomfortable a bit Mm -hmm. with it. Um, Whereas other movies, I think, more have that little... Well, they focus on the unrealistic aspect of the cops showing up just in time to foil the crime. Just what the studio wanted him the to do. The cops win. I right. think I think it's the it's John Doe winning that subverts it. Yeah, because you get a lot of serial killer movies where the serial killer is stopped after they learn the pattern from his first few killings, right. and they foil his grand scheme. But this is like you know, is like he turns himself in before even the like the the they discover the fifth, right? Oh no, he he turns himself in right after they discover the fifth. Right after yeah. they discover the fifth. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely plausible. It just this movie, I think, the reason I would pair it in along with Oliver Stone and Natural Born Killers specifically, and then Tarantino getting his launch around the same time. Uh, the craziness of like you say like the cops don't win, he does, but like does he? It was just that movie where it's like this so this morally ambiguous ending. You know right. what I mean? I guess. Yeah, I just I just realized I think maybe a better example of what I'm saying is like I feel like John Doe is the template, maybe the first template for that like genius serial killer who's like orchestrating all of these like crazy things that kind of became a, a character type that hasn't that it was hard to pull off in other movies. But I feel like a lot of movies tried to do it um, just because of the commercial success hmm. of Seven. I wonder now if this was influenced by silence at all. I think probably. I, I, I bet that you could you could go back and find David Fincher talking about Silence of the Lambs around 95. Did y'all read that they sent him the the whole reason the movie had any of was because they sent him the wrong draft? Yeah, the, the grislier ending. They sent him the grislier ending and they're like, wait, that's the wrong one. And he was like, nope, I'm making this one. <laughs> and then they got into a fight again when they were filming that scene. Where they're like, well, let's shoot the uh, the one where uh, Morgan Freeman 
shoots John Doe. And Brad Pitt was like, I will walk right now <laughs> if we take that direction. Or like they wanted a dog head. Yep. That was, was instead of her head. Dog. Yeah. And they, or they wanted to where he didn't die at all. They filmed one. I don't think he got on any DVDs where they get to him before he kills Tracy. Tracy. Yeah. Oh, weird. weird. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. You talked about uh, earlier, and I'm not trying to bring this back, but uh, I know, TJ, you brought it up, but uh, the, the audience word of mouth with this movie, um, there was a big cult uh, phenomenon surrounding this where people swore there was a single frame of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. A bloodied head in the box. There is. David Fincher has said there absolutely is not. Well, there is a head in a box. Right. But that that scene, that frame, does not exist in the movie. Oh, no. I saw saw it. I saw it this morning. However, I saw it, but I thought it was just a picture of her. Just like her. I thought... It could be that. I thought David Mills... I thought Mills just sees a picture of his, like, smiling wife flash through his mind just before he pulls the trigger. It's just right. It's right there. But you definitely see a frame of Gwyneth Paltrow's head. But that's that's what I mean. Is like for the audience thing is that that David Fincher coming out saying it's not in there, and the audience is going, "But I saw it." It's part of the yeah 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 part yeah. of the unsettling motif. the crazy like ARG marketing right yeah. Um, is it one of the best movies in its genre? I mean, I don't. Again, genre is hard to define. Is it one of the best dramas ever? No, but is it? <laughs> I mean, film art also like. What does best mean? Is it top five, top hundred, I, top whatever? I don't see it as a top ten in anything. I probably don't see it as a top twenty in anything. It might be. Well, you could argue that the like serial killer movies is a genre. Yeah, you could. But I, I wouldn't say it's in my top. Yeah, David David Fincher has made a better serial killer movie. Uh, which one? Zodiac. Oh uh, yes. Zodiac uh, is yeah, better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That movie's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I know where... We should watch Zodiac. Well, we're getting there. Go ahead. Um, has the film aged well? It, it, it doesn't age poorly. Yeah, I think it's... it's it's it doesn't, it doesn't, It's not like fine wine or anything, but it's not, it doesn't feel dated. No, it's, it's, it's like the setting. It is meant to be, to be able to exist in a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. It was going like to say autonomous, but yeah. 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 Um, okay. Time to vote. Sweet. Any other? Anything else you want to hit before? Right. Uh, no, I'm good. I found the lack of score disturbing, and I thought that that was effective. Also good. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I'm. You've heard me rant and rave about scores and sound design. Uh, I thought it was it was really cool. It was haunting. Um, that all you hear is atmosphere and like white noise. Right outside of the opening credit sequence, but other than that, I think we've. Oh, and uh, sorry, makeup and effects were fucking phenomenal. Uh, I mean, the sloth, yeah, body was sloth, gluttony, gluttony. Um, yeah, yeah you're right. Some 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 tech specs that I always pay attention to. And we didn't really talk, but uh, the lone action sequence in the movie was shot incredibly well, with Brad Pitt running through the apartment complex. Oh yeah, super disorienting. Yeah. Um. Again, you can see Somerset's uh, kind of influence on Pitt a little bit there, and vice versa with Pitt pretty much telling the lady what to tell the cops so they can get a warrant yep. at the end of that scene. Like, yeah, 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 I told you everything else. We're good to go. Like, go get some food. Go get some rest. Yeah. And the lady's like, he was creepy, <laughs> and we heard about the killings. Oh, uh, that's, yeah, okay. yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, 
person died right there, and he's like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> shut it down. Right. And then one last thing as we <clears throat> extend just into our uh, hour. Uh, I liked it was re- it was realistic because a lot of times you get police sketch artists that aren't that realistic. Uh, but yeah. I saw that and I thought of in Breaking Bad they do the police sketch of Heisenberg. And it's like really bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought of the leprechaun sketch from the yeah, that's what I thought of the news report. Triangle face. <laughs> yeah. Um also one last question. Is this movie The Great Wall of twenty seventeen? We we need a new movie. The Great Wall. Movie. The Great Wall was the Great Wall of 2017, and no other movie could. Is this the Animal Cracker close. movie? From 2018? Yeah, we'll see Animal Cracker, so that'll be the new Great Wall. I don't know. Sam Worthington didn't take flight in this movie, so <laughs> it's not the Titans, but I'll, we'll find another good, terrible movie. Yeah. I feel like if we get popular, that'll be one of the T-shirts we have on our website. Is it <laughs> is the, this movie the Great Wall? Oh, <laughs> uh, please tell your friends to listen to the podcast <laughs> so, so we can have enough. Uh, yeah, so we can. We can sell stupid t-shirts. Um, how do you want to do that? Do we want to try just going around and saying it? Did you want Did you want to hit anything from 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 David's notes, our field reporter? Yeah, I can. Uh, let's. Yeah, like he he sent notes. I should we should hear those before we vote, maybe. <laughs> and I'm a, I know, I'm okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna. No, yeah, my mind is made up. I'm not gonna politic for my vote, but um, yeah, I'm secure with it. David's very. Detailed? Abbreviated. No. Okay. Uh, The movie is grotesque, repugnant, mildewy, vulgar, unsettling, alienating, nihilistic, depraved, cold, and great. The saw scene, the foot chase, the box, all iconic. That's David's notes. That was much shorter than I thought it was going to be. David David writes himself essays, normally. Uh, So, yeah. I'll jump in first, because I feel like I know how this is going to go, maybe. Um... But we'll see. Uh, I'm a no vote for seven. Going to talk to him. Mainly because the, the main reason for me is I, there are at least two, maybe more, once Gone Girl and Social Network age a little more. Fincher movies that I think I would put in. And I don't think he is that great of a director that he needs four or five in to be eventual talk to him list. Um, also, just don't. I think it gets a lot of love for being the first to do something, and I'm not. I just generally don't give big points on that. But not the first two something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a no. I will vote yes. Uh, just because uh, for a lot of the reasons we've already talked about in the podcast, uh, just the, the general feel of the movie being, I think it's just perfectly executed. Uh, what what Fincher was going for. Um, especially in its, in its tone and with three people, this makes this uh, a little more difficult because I'm a swing. Not that I did swing, but uh, I'm a no vote also. Um, and the reason being, uh, similar to TJ's, I think that you have better movies doing the same thing by the same people making them and the same actors. Maybe not all together, but I think that there are gritty, crime, disgusting, freak-out movies from uh, Brad Pitt, there are more, like, the character that Morgan Freeman plays, he plays fantastically in, like, The Bone Collector. Like, whenever is, given the opportunity. Whenever given the opportunity to play detective, he's phenomenal. David Fincher has made... That's the doll. Oh. <laughs> the other glory. Yeah. Okay. The other pet for glory. <laughs> the other pet for glory. <laughs> um, Matthew Broderick? Yeah. But this... 
this feels in many ways like a sophomore season from David Fincher um, and from the whole story where this is the bud of a brilliant idea and kind of wave for David Fincher's career that he's moving through as opposed to planting his feet in and setting a standard for. Uh, I think you find more influential movies further on in his career uh, that, <clears throat> like was mentioned, that deserve a place in lists of great movies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's well said. It's, it's, I feel like this movie could be the best movie I vote no on ever. Like, it's it's going to be up there. It's really good. Yeah. It is a really good I movie. I think we all agree that it's a really good movie. Yeah. And it's imperfect, also imperfect movie. Right. Yeah. I, I would recommend this movie to anyone. I've seen it, as much as we talk about not wanting to re-see movies that make us uncomfortable, I've re-seen this movie, and I've seen it probably six, seven and times. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't think it. Not not saying I don't think it hangs like there's a group of movies that it has to belong with, but I think that there are David Fincher movies that belong up there and are more deserving. Yeah, especially for, you know, this is going off of what David kind of when he voted no for Metropolis, like especially for my list, there are movies that belong at the top, and this doesn't feel like one of them. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, if I'm making a Hall of Fame for movies and I'm just on the board. Yeah, maybe, but this is this is ours. And I don't know. David Kenner reminded me of that with Metropolis and he's right. This is what we think and not what we feel like we should think. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, David, for what it's worth, uh, scrawled on the underside of a table, written in someone's blood, as a yes. <laughs> so David was a yes. Nice. Um. So, yeah. Two two votes. Uh. Yeah. Anyway, uh, seven doesn't make it. 2-2 vote. Needed a majority. Didn't have it. Chris and I are no votes. Keep it out. Brent and David. Thought it deserved to be in. Anything else on 7 before we wrap it up? No. Leave it dead in the desert where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, again, for the fourth time on the podcast, it's stream on Netflix if anyone wants to check it out. And you should check it out. Uh, even though I voted no for it. Yep. And Chris did too. We both recommend watching it. Uh, if for nothing else, you get Kind of early Morgan Freeman before his career shot off in the beginning, at the beginning of it anyway. Yeah. And same with Brad Pitt. Kind of, they both kind of started getting famous in the early nineties, and this was ninety-five. Uh-huh. And you're, uh, you're forgetting about how important the movie Cool World was for Brad Pitt, where he acts opposite a cartoon fox. <laughs> he got he got killed by Matthew McConaughey a couple of years earlier too. And, California. Do they spell Cool World with a K, just like in California? No, they were spelling the day movies. They spelled properly. Okay. The C. Nice. Alright, this has been Talking Talk Podcast for the MediaBias.com. Oh yeah, we got homework. So next week, uh, I haven't decided 100% on the theme. I think it'll probably be a look into either a genre or a director's work. And I'm picking something kind of early in both. Um, in a similar vein to this, uh, I'm picking the movie Serpico. Serpico. Uh, Starring Al Pacino and directed by Sidney Lumet. Which there's a Serpico name drop in the movie 7. Yep. Nice. Um, Is that how we're going to do homework from now? Yeah, so we have to find a movie that's mentioned in Serpico. Um, It is streaming on, and I'm sorry if you don't have this, but it is streaming on Stars. Okay. Um, But, yeah, we're going to watch Serpico for next week. Cool. Exciting. Now we're good.
Could DJ yeah. say the thing now? Yeah. So yeah. everybody watch Serpico, and then we'll we'll talk about it next week. Nice. This has been Talkie Talk, the podcast for the MediaBias.com. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. Uh, we got the page. You can go like the Media by Us and Facebook groups where you can interact with us and all the other listeners and readers for the Media by Us, uh, Movies by Us, TV by Us, and Games by Us on Facebook. Uh, Twitter, the Media by Us, the Media by Us at gmail.com. And of course, our website, the Media by Us.com. Please uh, review and rate us on your podcasting app. Uh, and as always, we want to thank the intro music and the outro music. Intro music by Willow Walkers. Thank you, Willow Walkers. And outro music by Buriva. Thank you, Buriva. And that wraps it up. Everybody, goodbye. Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town, slow pokes, long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know. All the things that I know.